this morning on the way here, or actually, uh, when you come in the building at Hope on a Sunday morning, uh, if you're the first guy, and I often am the first guy here, you, you go and you hit the alarm thing in. The alarm thing in is a nice thing, not that, I don't know if that would deter anybody or not, but it's nice to you because when you come in, then you realize, you know, ain't nobody else in the building, or so you think. And so I'm walking, and I have this bad habit of not turning on lights, and so I'm walking in the building here, and I'm walking in complete darkness. If you go this way with the doors closed, and as you get closer to where the copy room is there, it is dark. I mean, dark, dark. Like, can't see dark. And so I'm walking, and I see a little bit of light, which to my mind would be the copier. If you're familiar with what's over here, there's a copier and through that doorway where the copier would be giving a little bit of reflection. It goes on sleep mode, and it, it would be just a little bit of reflection, and I, and I, I'm, I see that little bit of reflection. And so I go over to then hit where the light switch should be because I see the little bit of reflection. That would be in the doorway. So I'm standing in front of the doorway, and I go over to reach like this, and as I reach like this, an arm comes out to reach like that. <laughs> yeah, funny, ha, ha, ha. <sighs> Literally, I went, ah, like that. Until I realized it was a mirror. <laughs> and I was off by about three feet, you know, where the, where the thing was. Now, I had a goatee before that. Just gone. Uh, that was freaky. And the, the fact that it was a mirror and not someone else's arm, even though I saw an arm, it was an arm, it just was mine, going towards where I thought the light switch was, made all the difference in the world, right? Amen? Amen. I mean, it, may, it matters that that is a mirror and not some other dude. I don't know about you, but when you're in a building all by yourself and it's somebody else's arm and it's a dude, that's scary. <laughs> when it's someone's reflection, it just is a reflection. It's no big deal. In a split second, I had processed information that went from freaky to, hey, that's a good sermon illustration, right? <laughs> split second. Every one of us has a worldview. You do. You walk around with it. It's baggage. You got it. You can't help it. It's the way you process the world. If you don't have a worldview, that which way you order the world and you make sense out of it, and I'm not being funny, you end up in a mental institution because you can't process the world. You have a worldview. You have it set up with you. It starts very early in age. Anthropologists who've been studying this came up with around the turn of the, or the 20th century, so 1900s, late 1800s, around 1900s, found out, and I don't know how they get quanti quantify this, but they found out that by the age of five or six, you have somewhere between 45 and 60% of the way you're going to process the world a way that, that's your preferences, your values, the way you see things is going to be figured out. Almost about the time before you start forming complete sentences. That's kindergarten. They say that by the time you're 11 and 12, that's 6th grade. By 6th grade, 80% of the way you're going to process things has been formed. You, you have it. There, it's, not a, it's not a matter of if you're going to have it. You are going to have it. You are going to have a worldview, the way you look at things. For instance, when I walk in dark places and people reach out with their arm, that's freaky. Nobody ha I mean, that, 
I learned that somewhere, that people reaching for you when you're reaching one way is not a good thing. Right? Somehow that got processed. I don't know how. Maybe I was reaching for a cookie one day and my mom went slap or I don't know what. Somehow reaching, somebody else reaching, not good. You got it. You just react. It's your worldview. It's, your, it's the way you believe things. It's the way you process things. There's tastes and smells that you have. Last night, uh, the, uh, we had the Valentine's couples thing. We were over at Nye's Polynesian Inn or whatever it's called over in nor- Northeast over there. And uh, we, we're going through the line. Bart, I'm right, Bart's in front of me or behind me or I can't remember which one. Right in front of me. And, and uh, he says, what do you say those were again? Bacon wrapped, bacon wrapped sirloin. I'm thinking, bacon? I do bacon. Sirloin. Dude, I do sirloin. Bacon wrapped sirloin. Bring it home. Bring home the bacon, baby. That sounds good. I don't know. Not a combination I know if I'd have gone for, but bacon, sirloin, whatever. It's meat. Throw it at me. Great. So, sorry if you're vegan. I didn't mean any offense to that. I like two or four wrapped bacon, too. So, (laughs) (laughs) the vegans just left the church, Cor. They're gone. Sorry. Um, anyway, I digress. The, uh, so it's dark. It's dark. It's all a candle lit or something. It's really dark in there. So I see this brown thing and I see some kind of red thing wrapped around it, you know, bacon color. I feel, oh, that sounds great. Sounds good. So I take 12, 14, no, a couple, two, I think I took two or three of them and I thought, that looks good, you know, little tiny things and put those on my plate and whatever. And so I take a bite of them and I go to myself, I don't, that don't taste like sirloin. But it could have just been that bite or whatever. And then, and then Carol, you were saying, those, that, the, they keep saying that they're, they're scalloped bacon. And I'm thinking, you know, I know fish, and this is brown, and either this fish has got a disease or something, but this ain't, this ain't scallops, any scallops I know. So I'm in the middle of, I think, my third, third of these. <laughs> and that is the time when Carol mentions, that's liver. <laughs> that's about the time when you want to go, there's this gag reflex. And I realized all of a sudden the name and the taste converged and brought me right back to, I can see it clear as a bell. My parents, for whatever reason, and those of you who are my age, there was this kick in the 80s of liver and onions. Anybody? Yeah. Parents, yeah. They went through this kick of liver and onions like it's supposed to be good for you or something. Man, kill me a year early. I don't want liver and onions. It just <laughs> reeks the whole house. See, those of you who went through it, you're laughing. You know what I'm talking about. This whole house smelled. And it's like taking shoe leather and just kind of chewing on it with a little bit of Lowry sauce or something. It's just horrible. And I remember that, that they cooked this thing on this little electric, I still remember the grill and the whole thing and the sizzle and the onions and the, ugh. And then finally I realized, this sucks. Kill me. You know, I don't want to eat this. And we didn't eat it anymore, but... There was this big study that went out or whatever. It brought me right back there. My worldview was formed and I'm halfway. I got this thing in my mouth and I'm thinking, all right, I'm here to honor my wife. I shaved my face to honor my wife. I put this Rocky costume on, jet blacked my hair to honor my wife. If I hurl right now, that'll ruin the evening, okay? But I better just swallow this. But that other thing is going off to the side. Why? Because there had been thoughts and memories about this concept called liver that I had. You have them too. We all got them. We're in a spot right now in the Gospel of John where we're going to see people's worldviews that are going to clash. 
In fact, one of them is going to come probably with similar worldview, but they're going to end up changing, and this other one isn't. And they're going to clash. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're in the last of the four parts to John chapter 11. We broke John up into, or John 11 into four different parts. And we're going to find out about worldviews, and something's going to happen to these people, two different people, and they're going to respond different ways. They're going to respond with either believing it or disbelieving it. All right? So some of you, if you hear a story about something that is, it seems unbelievable, you, you, you react by skepticism or, you know, did that really happen? You know, for like me, when I, I, I was in uh, California this week, and I heard the news of this astronaut traveling from, was it Houston? Houston to Orlando to basically pull a Tanya Harding on this, nobody knows what Tanya Harding is, no, the skater? Okay, yeah, all right, you know, Nancy Kerrigan slapped her in the knee, holding. either was going to scare or kill this other love triangle interest, and I thought, wow, that is really bizarre, and then they flashed up the thing about that she wore a diaper from Houston to Orlando because she didn't want to stop. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry there. I, I just, I got issues here. This, this person needs to cancel her subscription because she's got issues, right? I mean, this. And these are, these are. The. These are our best, right? These are the people that go through stress tests. You know, I watch the right stuff. They spin these people around, the whole thing, and they take a battery of psychologicals. If you go berserk and you're at the space station, that's just not a good place to go berserk and ask for diapers, you know? It just, there aren't any. I need them. There are none. And they can't have that. So what do you do with that? Well, you're shocked. When something hits your world, you know, hits your worldview, what you don't think, you either got to reject it or alter your worldview. And for the first time in U.S. history, an astronaut has been charged with a felony. First time in, in history. So now we've got a, a new situation where something's got to fit in my worldview that changes it. Well, you can either that or reject it and say, you know what, you know what, it's just a big misunderstanding. You know, I don't quite know the diaper thing, but there's some big misunderstanding here. You do one or the other. You're shocked with that information. We're going to see that today in John chapter 11. What's been going on in John chapter 11 so far, the first 44 verses, is Jesus has been called on by a friend, uh, actually by the friend's uh, sisters, Mary and Martha, to come and heal Lazarus. He is sick. You find the first part of the, of the book. He is sick. In fact, this is a, we're going to find out a very sick sick, sick that could lead to death. And in fact, it does. Jesus said he will, this death, or excuse me, this illness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God that he's sick. And he says he loved them so much that he didn't go. He stayed back. He doesn't go. He lets Lazarus die. He, he, he delays two days. On the, then he decides to go after Lazarus' dead. On his way, he meets Mary and Martha. Meets Martha first, consoles her with words, sees Mary, consoles her with his emoting with her. In fact, the text says that he snorted like a horse. Excuse me, snorted like a horse because he was so he was so emotive, he was so mournful, he was agitated, he was angry even. Uh, 
the, the, the sorrow had gone to the point where he's, he's worked up. And then he goes to the tomb. They ask, he asks to move the stone. They say, hoo, 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 four days. Going to be El Stinko. And he says, I don't care. Move the, move the stone. They move the stone. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, that has just happened. Now we're going to see two different reactions to that. Starting in verse 45. Therefore, so that means all that's happened so far, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. So here's the qualifications of who those people are. They're the people that came to visit Mary, so they knew Mary. I'm not sure why it doesn't say Martha or Lazarus. I'm not sure why, but maybe Mary was the popular one. I'm not sure, but they came out of Jerusalem, made the two-mile trek to Bethany. They made that distance. There was a a group of people that came. That's what you did in that culture. If you knew people who had died, you came to support the family, and they did that. They came. Second thing is they saw, it said, they had seen. So they were standing there, or perhaps they just saw Lazarus walking around. And what do they do? Again, this is a worldview crasher. Normally, when I go to a funeral and somebody says, anybody got any more words? The dude in the casket doesn't sit up and say, I got a couple. Right? If that happens, your worldview changes in a hurry. Because right now, my worldview says, and yours probably does too, is that when people are dead, they're, they're dead. They don't do the raising thing. Unless it's like a Freddy Krueger movie or something. But I mean, real life, they don't. And here you got a deal where you were dead. We saw you. We put you in the tomb. We closed the door. We opened it up. The smell of death came out. We know what that smells like. It ain't good. And then you were raised. Whoa. Okay. This is diaper with a capital D. This is, I got, there's issues here. And what, it, whoa, just Jesus is who he says he is. Every, everything changes. Now, the Bible, what we call that is conversion. Worldview, taking your worldview and putting Jesus on the lowest part of your, of your totem pole or perhaps even rejecting him at all and then flipping him around and saying, oh my gosh, you, you really are who you say you are. You, you really are the son of God. You really died on the cross to take away my sin. You're the one who rose again. You're victorious over everything. All the things in the Bible that you talk about that you said are true. Oh my goodness. And what that is, is it shakes every bit of your worldview. Every bit of it. And it completely shifts. And what do they do? Wow, well he raised a guy from the dead. Uh, I believe in him. They put their faith in him. That's one Side. Let's see the other side. Actually, the rest of the whole passage deals with the other side. But, there's a contrast here now. Some, remember many of the Jews come to visit Mary. Uh, they're the ones who put the faith in. But some of the crowd that was there, some of them, narc. And they go over to the Pharisees. They went to the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are the religious rulers of the day. They should be the ones most excited that Jesus has come. And they're the ones that are most threatened. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, just stop right a second. What, what do you think they told them? You've got you to read this like it's true. What they, they walk in, or they go to the Pharisees, and they said, Dude, we were there. 
we saw him move this stone. After the stone, we watched him go in there and raise a dead guy. That's the data that they're given, right? Because that's what it says. It says, they went there and told them what Jesus had done. So what do they do? They do the thing any good churchman would do. They call a meeting. <laughs> then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And the first word at the meeting is this. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It really sounds kind of whiny. It should be read like this. Oh, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, it's just... <laughs> okay. Now, if you're at that meeting and you're a good board member, you're just going to raise your hand and say... Excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, that's topic B. Jesus just raised a dude from the dead. Is anybody going to deal with that bullet point? Is that on the agenda here? We're missing that. Jesus just raised a dude from the dead. Nuh-uh, no, no, no. Oh, great, there he goes again. Now what are we going to do? This, if this keeps up, if he keeps doing these signs, I mean, you know, people are going to actually start following him. And if they follow him, it's probably going to be mass chaos. He's going to come downtown Jerusalem. There's going to be like a revolt. And, and you know what? The Romans are going to come in, and they're going to say, enough. Enough of this revolt. And you know what? They're probably going to put us out of business. They're probably going to put our temple out of business, and we'll take, lose our place in society. Perhaps even they'll just shut down our nation, which is kind of ironic because they're under Roman rule already. But they were somewhat semi-autonomous. Rome liked to do that with conquered nations. They liked to come in. And then kind of let them be, like Greece and Israel and different things. They kind of let them be to some extent. Well, we might lose that. That's what's at stake. Verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Don't worry about this. Tell me how this is going to play out. Let me give you the rationale for what's going to happen. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Hey, if it costs us one innocent guy, but it saves our political structure and our system and our way of life, it's worth it. I mean, it's the ultimate in the ends justifying the means, even though it's a totally unethical thing. And ironically, as high priest, he said this. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Isn't that interesting? I just find this. A, God's a genius. Takes this person who's been given a role of high priest, highest office you can have, which you'd think he'd be a godly man, but he's so disconnected from who God really is that God himself is standing right in front of him or right in his region, and he's rejecting him. He's standing at this meeting saying, we've got to kill this guy. If we don't kill this guy, a revolt's going to happen. We've got to kill him. So much so that God uses him to give him a, a prophecy that could be interpreted two ways. The first way is, well, God himself has spoken to me and told me that this guy has to die for the Jewish nation. The second way is God himself has spoken to me and told me this guy has to die for the Jewish nation. 
The one meaning he's got to be taken out, so politically we can make it. The other way is he has to die in order to reconcile us to God. Caiaphas and the whole room thought it was the first. What God was intended was the second. Verse uh, 50 is the rationale. If you're in a meeting now and you're a good boardsman, you want to know what's the ground, what's the foundation that we're building this house on. Any actions we're going to take, a good board member always asks, why? What's the rationale? How does it fit with our overall vision? I've been part of boards for a long time. That's what you're always asking. And they would say, the overall strategy here is the protection of the nation. Therefore, we will cack one guy. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So, verse 53, from that day on they plotted to take his life. See where this goes? That's how board meetings work. You got a board meeting around, you come up with a, here's a vision, here's a mission statement, whatever you want to call it. And the mission statement is protect the, protect the nation, even at the cost of others. Action point, bullet number one, CAC Jesus. We got a plot how to take him out. And they start, and it's this word, plotting. So there's the big bullet point, and then the meeting, and then all one, two, three, four, and then assignments of who's going to do what, and meeting dismissed. These action points will be done by, put it in your Franklin planner or your Palm planner, whatever, and get back to me. That's what's happening. They're plotting. They're plotting. They're strategizing. This is not just some passive, oh, it'd be nice if he'd go away kind of thing. At this point on, we'll see, it's the turning point in the book of John. From this point on, they never waver. They're out to get it. In fact, we'll see in just a second that this happens about a week or so or 10 days before the end of Jesus' life. Half of the book of John is the last week of Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. So the the plot is revealed, revealed so much so that the disciples and Jesus find out about it. And he can no longer, the cost of this plot is that Jesus no longer intermingles with people at all. He just stays in this other region and he's in hiding. He's going to only show himself when he comes for the, for the Passover feast, which is coming up in just a bit. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Now, this is ironic. So people from all over the region are going to come to Jerusalem, so it's going to be another gathering coming into Jerusalem. And, it's, and it says, when it came about that time, so it's somewhere in the week, ten days beforehand, when this time comes, they have to go through ceremonial cleansing. What ceremonial cleansing was, if you didn't go through the washing and the right words, hands and whatever else, you could not partake of the Passover. You were unclean. So you got these guys who were at this board meeting who go through this. They're, they're washing their hands. They're saying all the right words. They're, they're washing whatever parts of their arms they need to. They're saying all the right words all the time plotting to kill God's only son. Anybody see anything a little wacky with that? I'm religiously right, but I'm wicked to the core. I'm I'm, I'm about to partake in the greatest conspiracy the history has ever known. And yet my hands are clean. I'm a good church guy. All these people looked for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he going to come to the feast at all? 
the, the, the preliminaries to the feast start to take place and Jesus isn't there, but the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone found out where Jesus was, they should report it so that they could arrest him. Now, the plot, one of the action point was, let the crowd know that we want to know where Jesus is and we're going to arrest him. He is a criminal. It's gone beyond debate. It's gone beyond, we're going to talk about this. It is now to the point of, we're going to arrest him. And we're going to kill him. We'll do it. We'll find out later in the book. We're going to do it in the, on the confines of what the Roman law will let us do. But we are going to kill him now. The data was the same thing given to two groups. I want to tell you a little tale of two groups. They're at the same data, right? You've got a walking guy who was dead. That's the same data. Granted, some of them saw it, but they don't doubt the data. There's never a doubt of the data. In fact, they say, he's going off doing miracles. They're assuming it happened. The data is exactly the same for both groups. The same for the group in verse 45, and the same for the second group, the board meeting group. What is the difference? It's totally different. First group. Sees the data. Here's the data. Jesus raised from the dead. Doesn't quite fit with their worldview. They're not followers of Jesus at this point. They decide with open hands to embrace Christ. Put their faith in him. Put their trust. Allow their worldview to say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this changes everything. You're the, you are the, well you really are who you say you are. And everything flips with open hands, they embrace Christ. Second group. Second group's mind's made up. Jesus could have walked on water. Oh, that's right, he did. He could have done anything. Different gospel, sorry, different story. But he could do anything, and it wouldn't matter. There's nothing Jesus could have done except submit to their agenda to prove that he was a Messiah. And he wasn't going to do that. They had closed fists. They're ready to beat on him with these closed fists. They've got their worldview and it's locked in and I will not listen to Jesus at all. I know what's going on. I know who I am. I know this situation. I know God. And therefore, Jesus, you don't fit into that box. Therefore, you got to go. Up come the fists. Open hands, closed fists. Now, one of the things that you constantly ask them, well, what's the difference between these two? And it's the difference, all the difference in the world. What does it involve? It involves belief or unbelief. Now, unbelief is not doubt. Unbelief is a refusal. A refusal to believe. I will not trust him. Belief is an openness to say, wow. That shocks me. That doesn't fit. But now I need to go back and re-understand all the other things in my life because this piece of data has changed it. Now, one of the things that, that at Hope, we're, we're a theological church. And oftentimes, I was told many times, don't do a theological church. Don't teach people the basic concepts of, of theology or whatever, and you'll never grow a church. People don't care about them. I'm like, what? That's crazy talk. I can't understand that. I mean, sure, you don't want to drone on and on about dry and dusty doctrine, but 
the doctrine of God being an almighty, omnipotent God, like I said, is not a dry, dusty thing. It's like licking your fingers and sticking them in the outlet. That's not boring. It's not a boring lecture on electricity, right? That's boring. First, let's have a lab experiment. Here, hold on to this wire. You hold on to this wire. Zap! Whoa! Okay, that's electricity. Now you know what it is. Let's talk about it. Okay, let's talk about it. There's some excitement there. But the phrase people often say is, don't, don't teach a certain system because that divides people. And it can. Admittedly, if you're so dogmatic on your system. But everybody's got systems. Don't, that's ridiculous to say you don't have a system. I come from mostly a Reformed or Calvinistic understanding. In other words, I believe God's sovereignly in control of all things. I believe that he predestines. He moves in people's lives. Uh, all these different things. But I also believe, and okay, this shows how my system kind of falls apart, but whatever, I also believe you have real choices. God gives you real choices. The Bible doesn't make any sense, in my opinion, without holding both of those. You could push the Calvinism system too far and say everything's determined. I don't believe that. I believe we have real choices. Anyway, whatever. People say, well, if you, if you talk about that, it's just going to divide people. Why don't you just talk about Jesus? If you just talk about Jesus, then the church won't be divided. Jesus unites and doctrine divides. That's the phrase. Jesus unites? Jesus unites. I'm thinking, what? Now, I know historically doctrine by people who are pricks have divided. And you, that's not allowed. Well, I'm serious. You're just not allowed to be a jerk with your theology. Your theology at best is still not exactly right. I don't agree with myself five years ago, okay? So you, you, you have things and you want to hold them and you want to push them, you want to understand them, but I'm, you know, there's somewhat of an open hand there. But this idea that Jesus unites and doctrine divides, it, it makes this, oh, this happy Jesus, you know, Jesus with, you know, sunshine and smiley face. Dude, I, I, I'm just like, am I reading the same book you guys are? I mean, this is not the Jesus I'm reading about. You know, people that say, I, I've, I've read this, where People give marketing tools to bring people to church. And I, I, I think that's good. That's fine. Just make it accurate. One of them says, if your marriage is in trouble, come to our church and you'll have a happy marriage. You'll, implying you'll be, you know, your marriage will be fixed and whatever. And I'm thinking, there ain't no guarantee of that. I mean, I read my Bible and it says, you may come to this church and your wife may divorce you. That, that's what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying, oh great, everybody's going to leave now, but I'm, I'm saying Jesus does not come necessarily to make everybody warm, fuzzy, happy puppy dogs. The Christian life is not a happy, warm, fuzzy puppy dog life. I'm reading through the Bible right now. Many of you are joining me. I'm in Matthew chapter 10. And I, I just thought, as I read this, I thought, oh my goodness, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is going to send out his 12 disciples. He's going to send them out on a short-term mission trip. They're going to go out, and they're going to come back and report. In, in Matthew chapter 10, he's going to send them out. And here's what he teaches them. This is, this is the last night before you board the plane for your short-term mission trip. And this is Jesus speaking to you. Here you go. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Nice. Do you see that? Flogging was a whip 
probably three strands, three to four strands, maybe more, and it had little pieces of glass or shards of metal that you would put over the bare back of someone, and then when it stuck, you'd give it a pull. Mel Gibson got it exactly right in the movie The Passion. It's exactly what flogging is. And where do they do it? In the church. Oh, great. Would you like to stay for a while? We were reception downstairs. The flogging room is right over here. <laughs> be on your guard against me, and they'll hand you over to local counts of flogging in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it, is n- it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What an awesome promise. And here it comes. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Just, he's trying to warn them, saying, listen, they call me the devil. You're my followers. You're the devil. Just, you're going to be labeled that. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a worldview shifter. Don't worry about your life. Fear God and everything comes into focus. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will die or fall to the earth, to the ground. Be apart from the will of your Father, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And there I see just vividly this picture of these people at the graveside of Jesus uh, of Lazarus. And Jesus raised them and they go, oh, I acknowledge that. And I see his boardroom they say, I disown that. And Jesus says, you have written your own condemnation. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus unites? It's going to be battle in your own house. Then he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, you got to understand, read that in context. What's he saying? Not that you shouldn't love your family, love them a ton. No, it's not saying that. It's saying in the context here, if you're in a situation with a family member and they are uh, saying you're a fool for following Christ, You're not to back down and say, oh, yes, 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 you're right. I I need to keep this family relationship. No, Jesus says, if you do that, you're not worthy of me. 
If you just give in and say, peace is the most important thing, you're not, you're not worthy of me, he's saying. Not that don't love your, that's not saying don't love your, not to love your family. That's not what it's saying. He's saying, in that situation, you should definitely choose Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. So if, you're, if your goal in life is peace, you're in the wrong building. If your goal in life is comfort, there's bars I could point you to. If your goal in life is to get immediate satisfaction for your needs, there's prostitutes on Franklin and Chicago. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus unites? Doctrine divides? These are hard words. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his rewards. There you go. Have a nice trip to Uzbekistan or whatever. We'll see you in three weeks. That's Jesus' words to you as you leave. That's Jesus' training to you. When Christ came to earth, he knew full well that it would divide people. It would divide people. There would be those that had their open hands and that there would be those that have closed hands. Now, I want to use that analogy in your own life. I'm going to make an assumption here for most of the people in this room, you've come to a point in your life where you saw Lazarus being raised or whatever Lazarus was in your life and you opened your hands up and said, I put my faith in you. I'm, I'm making an assumption here. I think there are still times in your life where you are between these two. There's a situation that comes in, no matter what it is, there's some, there's some Lazarus kind of thing. could be a hard thing, doesn't matter. And you don't care about the data, you go back to the boardroom. You go back to the boardroom and you don't care about the data at all. What you want to do is create a rationale and create a plot against Jesus. All right, you know what, Jesus? There's, there's all these things in my life. I know there's, but there's this one specific area that, like the song we sang says, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. That's Romans chapter 6. You no longer are under the ma- you're no longer a slave to the master of sin. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You do not have to sin. Oh, you don't know, Pastor. You don't know. I've had this thing since I've been nine years old. Nine years old, man. I, I got into this, this pornography thing, or I got into this relationship thing, or I got into drugs, or I got you just don't know, Pastor. There's it's just this thing's got No. The Bible says you're not a slave to sin. I'm not saying it's easy. The Bible says you're not a slave to sin. I don't want to hear that. Heard that all my life. I'm tired of hearing that. And you plot against Jesus. You plot against them. Well, why'd you give it to other people, not to me? Why do I have, why am I, this is my thing, and what's the deal? And you're sitting in that boardroom. And I'm sitting in that boardroom. Plotting against Christ. 
at worst, dismissing him at best, ah, pfft. It's no longer open hands, folks. Don't, don't give me this open hand stuff. It's not open hands at that moment. It's clenched fists. You've got them, I've got them. Let me close by this, asking you a question. Does, does Jesus Christ fit into, or rather, does he completely revolutionize your worldview? And I'm not just talking capital W, capital V, small w, cap, small w, small V. In other words, does he fit in with your day-to-day situations? And in areas where he doesn't, the Bible has a word for that. It's called repent. What repent means is to literally change your mind. That's what it means. To change your mind. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I just first and foremost want to acknowledge that um, there are many times in prayer even that I am wrestling in the boardroom with you. God, would you show each one of us how silly the boardroom is? Uh, Lord, would you show us, each one of us, how it doesn't even make logical sense to be sitting there. Lord, your promise at the beginning of this service uh, read by Kor was that your word will not return to you empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God. That's our hope. Our hope is that this word for us today will be a word in our lives. Holy Spirit, if you don't do a work, every one of us is going to run back to the boardroom. So Holy Spirit, you've got to do a work. Do a work in our lives. Cause us to see the fallacy, the lies, the, 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 the wrong concepts we have and those things we just need to say, no, I refuse to believe that that's true. I no longer believe that. Jesus has told me otherwise he raises Lazarus from the dead. I'll believe in him. And so, Holy Spirit, that has to come. And right now, we want to give your Holy Spirit freedom in this room to do its work. Lord, if there are areas we need to be challenged on, challenge us. If there are patterns that we have in our life that need to be uh, encountered by you, do it. Not so that we're better people or we can brag about it, but Lord, because there's joy in following you. Lord, I want to pray for people in this room who maybe for the first time in their lives want to open up their arms to Jesus Christ. Jesus, I pray that you would work in ways that words cannot and you'd clearly make known to them how much you love them how much you see them for everything they are, including all of their sin, and yet want them to come home right to your arms. Jesus, would you draw people to yourself, even this morning in this room, and that they would bend their knee to you for the first time and say, Lord, I put my trust in you, nothing else. I pray that for the same of us who maybe many years ago started that process but through life circumstances, slowly, slowly, slowly changed an open hand to a clenched fist. God, by your spirit, with a big hammer, hit our hands. Cause them to open. Even as we sing this last song, Lord, just do your work in our midst. We pray in Christ's name.